and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Fabrizio Cariani, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Northwestern University, and he's here to talk to us about judgment aggregation. Fabrizio Cariani, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Matt and Mark. Well, the question to begin with, I think, is pretty obvious. Uh, What is judgment aggregation? Judgment aggregation is a formal theory that basically tries to characterize uh, various possible ways in which you aggregate individual opinions into collective opinions. It's actually studied by people in all kinds of fields. It's studied by people in economics, political science, in philosophy, and even in artificial intelligence. I've been interested in how you should apply this theory to some questions in epistemology. So questions concerning what could it possibly be for a group to have a belief. So I guess some philosophers maybe think that it is impossible for groups to have beliefs, but I guess you you think that it is the case, that a group of people can believe something as a group over and above what the individuals in the group believe individually. So it depends a little bit on what you mean by having a belief and also a little bit on what you mean by over and above. There is one sense in which uh, it's clear that it's much harder to say that a group has a belief. And for example, you might think that for something to have a belief, it has to have a brain. And if you think that then, well, I guess groups have multiple brains, but they don't have one brain that's the brain of the group. However, there is another sense of having a belief, or another sense that we make of the idea of ascribing beliefs to agents, in which what we do is ascribe beliefs as part of the general enterprise of, for example, explaining actions, understanding in general how intentional agents behave. If you have this picture, there is as much reason to ascribe belief to a group as there is to ascribe belief to an individual, because obviously groups make decisions, obviously they do so on the basis of reasons. And in fact, this morning I actually googled the expression, the committee believed without anything following, and I got well over a million hits. The idea of uh, groups of people having belief is actually somewhat entrenched in the way in which we talk about actions and the way in which we talked about subjects in the broadest sense of the term behaving. Now there was another part of your question which was about whether or not these beliefs are over and above the beliefs of the individuals. And I think that's a bit delicate and it depends a little bit on what you mean by over and above. Saying that a group has a belief over and above the group of the individual could mean that the group belief is not determined by the beliefs of the individuals. And that's actually something that I don't necessarily believe is true. I think the opinions of the group are in some sense determined by the opinions of the individual members of the group. But on the other hand, I think it's possible for the opinion of the group to be different from the opinions of any one of the members of the group. So there's a somewhat subtle distinction there, but it's a distinction you could possibly want to draw. For example, let's give a very simple example. Imagine a condo association that has to decide whether or not the windows in the building have to be cleaned. It could be that there is a precisely 50% split among the people in the condo association as to whether or not the windows should be cleaned. So 50% of the people think the windows should be cleaned, 50% think the windows should not be cleaned, let's say because it's too expensive to clean them. Now, you may think that the correct opinion to ascribe to the group in that case is something like an indeterminate opinion, something like the group suspends judgment on whether or not the windows should be cleaned. But of course, that's different from the opinion of any one of the members of the condo association. Every one of them believes either that the windows should be cleaned or that the windows should not be cleaned. So you could have a different state, as it were, from the states of any of the members of the group. But in another sense, that state is determined by the opinions of the members of the group. Okay, so in other words, if a group of people, let's say a committee 
or a circle of friends or maybe even something bigger like a town or a country, if a group of people can do certain things, can perform certain actions as the group, and we work under the assumption that whenever an agent performs an action, that action has reasons and is motivated by reasons and beliefs, then it seems we must also countenance this idea of groups having group beliefs. Yes. So we might say, for example, in 2004, evangelical Christians voted for George Bush because they believed that he was the man to Mm -hmm. do whatever for them. Precisely. So there we're treating a group of people as having a belief and acting in accordance with that belief. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we say this kind of thing all the time. You just have to listen to the news to hear numerous examples of large groups of people or committees or panels of experts or voter blocks having beliefs. And so the questions you want to ask are philosophical questions about that. Yes. I want to ask questions concerning, for example, whether we can ask not just whether these groups of people have a belief, but also, just as you mentioned, whether or not there is a sense to be made of a group having a belief that's supported by a reason, that's another belief, for example. Because you may just think that for a group to have a belief is just for the group to decide on some proposition. So whether or not they believe that proposition, for example. Like when a panel of experts decides that a certain area is not at risk of earthquakes or something like that. But it's one thing to have a group converge on a particular proposition. And it's a different thing to have the group converge on a whole set of propositions where some of them may be reasons for others. And that's a lot more complicated, as it turns out. So I guess one question to clarify at this stage is there are a couple of different kinds of interest you could have in this phenomenon. You might say a descriptive interest or a prescriptive interest. Mm -hmm. So that's to say you might be interested just in saying something about how is it that a group of people can be said to have a belief? How does that work? How does the individual belief relate to the group belief? Or you might be interested in the prescriptive question of how should we come to form group beliefs? How should we characterize the beliefs of a group as opposed to the beliefs of individuals? Are you interested in both of those questions or just one? I think I'm interested in both of those questions, and I'm also interested in a few questions that are a bit hybrid. So there is one sense in which the theory itself, the formal theory, is neutral between a prescriptive and a descriptive interpretation. Just like, for example, principles of logic you might think, are neutral between a descriptive and a prescriptive interpretation. But I think there's going to be applications of the theory in which the outcome is clearly descriptive. For example, some applications in artificial intelligence when people ask questions about how we should aggregate multiple databases into some single opinion holder. But there are also some applications that I consider to have much more normative significance. So Uh, One of the applications that I'm most interested in is an application to collective testimony. So the question is, how we should react to the testimony of a group of people? For example, again, of a panel of experts when they give you their opinion on a certain subject matter. And it's clear that that question has, in some sense, uh, normative significance. So, for example, suppose I consult a geologist from Caltech, a geologist from Stanford, and a geologist from California about the probability of earthquakes in California next year, or something like that. But also about a number of other propositions that may be related to that. So things like what kinds of phenomena were observed out in the oceans in the past five years, let's say. There's a sense in which what the theory is trying to get at is how I should revise my belief in the face of the testimony of these experts. 
especially in the kind of delicate case in which the experts disagree with each other. If they all agree, we all, I think there is no problem with judgment aggregation, right? Because we're just going to believe what they tell us to believe. But when they disagree, a question arises as to how we should aggregate their opinions together into something that we can incorporate in our picture of the world. So there's one very obvious way of thinking about this question that you yourself have written about, which is to say, well, look, isn't it quite straightforward? The relationship between the beliefs of individuals and the beliefs of that group of individuals is simply this. The group can be said to believe whatever the majority of the individuals in the group believes. So let's say I have a panel of 10 experts on earthquakes and eight of them think there's going to be a major earthquake in Chicago in the next year. It's fair for me to say the panel believes there's going to be an earthquake in Chicago in the next year. Is there anything wrong with that way of looking at it? So it depends on the circumstances, as it turns out. In absolute generality, there is something wrong. And what is wrong is that when you're aggregating opinions on a set of logically connected propositions, majorities are not guaranteed to be consistent. We can actually give a fairly simple example. Let's give it first in the abstract, then maybe we'll try to give it in concrete. But in the abstract, it's something like this. Suppose that you have two propositions, P and Q, and you also want to consider their conjunction. It could be that there is a majority for P, a majority for Q, but it could be that the two majorities do not overlap. So as it turns out, there is a minority in favor of the conjunction. And when that happens, we're going to have a majority for P, a majority for Q, and a majority for the negation of P and Q, which means the majority is actually recommending inconsistent beliefs in the way in which we're interpreting things. And I think it's fair to say we don't want, in such a simple case, to have a rule that tells us that the group opinion is inconsistent. So we're going to find some other way of dealing with these kinds of cases. Now, there's a question of how common these cases are, and they're not super common, but I think there's two things you can say to that question. First of all, there actually are cases like this. So when Germany got unified at the beginning of the 1990s, I mean, this is a little bit, it's not completely true what I'm about to tell you, but it's fairly close to true. There was a referendum that was taken as to whether or not Berlin or Bonn should be the new capital. And from the administrative point of view, the vote was, should the parliament move from Berlin to Bonn? Should the government move from Berlin to Bonn? And should the parliament and the government be in the same city? Now, those three propositions are logically connected in such a way that you could conceive a distribution of opinions in which you could actually get inconsistent results. For example, there could be a majority for the proposition that the parliament should move to Berlin, a majority for the proposition that the government should stay in Bonn, and also a majority for the proposition that the parliament and the government should be in the same city. And when that happens, of course, you have some kind of inconsistent collective belief. So in one sense, yes, there are some problems with majority principles for aggregating beliefs. On the other hand, when there are no logical connections between propositions, majority principles serve us very well. Because it seems, you know, if we are deciding on an individual proposition, for example, majority is very good because the identities of the particular believers don't matter, for example. Uh, for example, we could have a committee that was formed of me, you, and Matt, right? But the committee could be such that Matt gets to make all the decision, right? That would be one way of aggregating our opinions, but it would not be a particularly fair way. So if we wanted a more democratic way of aggregating opinion, a majority is a good principle to have. On the other hand, 
majority has this problem in these somewhat complicated cases in which there are multiple propositions involved. So what we have to do is find some way of creating collective opinions from the individual opinions that has both the advantages of majority rules and does not have the problems the majority rules have in these cases in which there are connected propositions involved. Okay, so it seems like a fairly intuitive way to describe the way the beliefs of a group are derived from the beliefs of the individuals in the group is to say, well, whatever the greatest percentage of the people in the group believes is what the group believes. But then, uh, as we just saw in this Berlin Bonn example, that can lead us to conclude that the group has inconsistent beliefs. It can lead us to conclude that the group believes P, the group believes Q, but the group doesn't believe P and Q, but that seems just logically inconsistent. Well, then it seems like we want to say, well, you know, we want a principle of aggregating these individual judgments that preserves the democratic feel, as it were, of the majority rules principle, but doesn't lead us to conclude that the group has inconsistent beliefs. So what might be an example of like an alternative to the majority rules principle? So there are a couple of different examples I wanted to mention. One of them is a so-called supermajority principle. A supermajority principle is just like a majority principle, but the threshold for acceptance is greater than 50%. If you construct the threshold carefully enough, and I'm not going to go into the details of this, but if you construct the threshold carefully enough, you can guarantee that the outcome of a supermajority rule will be consistent. So in the particular case of P, Q, and their conjunction, the threshold has to be at least two-thirds of the vote. Any constituency for each proposition of at least two-thirds of the votes will be guaranteed not to create inconsistencies in that particular case. There is a little bit of math involved in this. Uh, we should not necessarily expect that everybody will figure it out on themselves. But just like I think the slogan is that raising the threshold in some systematic ways can help you avoid the inconsistency problem. Presumably, there couldn't be a fixed threshold because that would just lead us into the same problem that we had originally. Yes. It would have to yes. fluctuate depending on the circumstances. Yes. The threshold would fluctuate depending on the circumstances. Another way of doing it is to designate some propositions as the most important ones and then aggregate by majority only on those propositions and figure out by inference what you're going to do on the other propositions. So, for example, in the case of the Berlin Bonn example, you could say that, well, what matters is the proposition that the parliament should move to Berlin and the proposition that the government should move to Berlin. And whether or not they should be in the same city, we will just decide once we have the outcome of the first vote. Or similarly, you could say what matters is whether the parliament should move to Berlin and whether the parliament and government should be in the same city. And whether the government should move, we will just decide by, by inference. Okay, right. So you would decide which of the beliefs you're talking about are logically independent of one another and say that the majority rules principle applies just to them, and then say the rest of the beliefs of the group are just whatever is logically consistent with those logically independent beliefs. Yes. I mean, you have to say something slightly stronger than they are logically independent. They have to be logically independent, and they also have to imply a verdict on every one of the propositions you're interested in. But in some cases, that can be done. I don't mean to suggest that these two are the only two ways of actually producing an alternative to the majority rule. And in fact, I think the way in which researchers in this field think is not so much by thinking of alternative rules, but by thinking of constraints. So the way in which the research proceeds here is by saying something like, well, there are so many things I want out of an aggregation rule. I want it to give me some sense of fairness, for example, some sense in which the identity of the voters does not matter. I want it to be in some way responsive to which proposition has the most votes, for example. 
And so what people try to do is formalize constraints or like give precise constraints that will represent all the things that we desire about these aggregation rules. And one of the central methodologies of the field is to try to figure out which sets of constraints are compatible with each other and which sets of constraints are not compatible with each other. So this last question about Mm -hmm. the kinds of constraints we want on our aggregation rules, whatever principle we use, we want it at least to be able to do this with the various beliefs that we have. You've argued in your work that there are really deep problems with putting these constraints together, getting all of the constraints that we want to work together. And one of those is a constraint that you call the independence Mm -hmm. constraint. So maybe you could tell us what is that constraint, why is it important, and why does it seem to be a problem? Yes. So actually, I did not call it independence myself. It's called independence as a part of the folk terminology for this. But uh, the constraint says that the collective outcome, so the collective belief on a particular proposition, say Q, or whether the parliament should move to Berlin, is uniquely determined by the opinions of the members of the group on that proposition alone. So there are general, theoretical, and also specific reasons why I think we should resist this constraint. The particular reason, like the specific reason, is that I think the sense of a collective opinion that we want is much more sensitive to the reasons that people produce in support of a certain proposition. So just to give you an example, consider again the proposition that, let's say, that the parliament and the government should be in the same city. Uh, There are two ways of believing that proposition. You could think that the parliament and the government should be in the same city and that they should both be in Berlin. And you could believe that they should be in the same city and they should both be in Bonn. So imagine two different panels. One panel believes that the parliament and government should be in the same city, and they're unanimous on what the reasons they want to produce for that. They all believe, let's say, it should be in Berlin, or they should be in Berlin. The other panel, instead, is split on the questions of where they should be, but they agree that they should be in the same city. So let's say some voters in the panel think parliament and government should be in Berlin. Some other voters believe that parliament and government should be in Bonn. The independence constraint means that there is no difference between these two panels insofar as the question of whether parliament and government should be in the same city. There is equal support for that. And so one way of criticizing that principle is to think, in one case, the fact that the individuals have undermining reasons for the belief that they should be in the same city makes their agreement much less weak than in the case in which they're also unanimous on the reason. Whereas independence tells us we shouldn't care about the reasons they produce for that belief. We should just care about what their opinion on the particular belief is. So the other problem with independence is that, as I was mentioning before, much of the methodology in this field is to consider various sets of constraints and see which ones are compatible and which ones are not compatible with each other. Now, in many of the results of the form, such and such constraints are incompatible. Independence is actually involved. So independence is, in some sense, a possible culprit for results of the form, say, four or five desirable constraints on what an aggregation rule could possibly be are not collectively satisfiable. So that's another reason, I think, to reject independence in general. Now, this constraint thing is a little complicated, though, because there are going to be results of this form even without independence. So even without independence, you can put together an argument that things that we desire in an aggregation rule cannot be collectively satisfied. So what it seems to me is that that is a little bit of motivation for thinking that there are multiple rules that in general are equally good candidates and that in any specific case what we do is we figure out 
what kinds of constraints are required by the particular situations we're trying to represent. And so we tailored the aggregation rule, in fact, to the particular case. So that maybe aggregating the geologist's opinion on earthquakes in California is going to require a different aggregation rule from aggregating the opinions of the German voters on whether or not the parliament should move. Yeah, okay, right. So it may be that in different situations, groups derive their beliefs from the beliefs of their individual constituents in different ways. Yes. Maybe sometimes they follow the majority rules principle, sometimes they follow a supermajority principle, maybe sometimes they follow other principles. And it may be that there isn't one principle followed in every case, but rather we have maybe a list of our favorites. Yes, yeah. you, you also don't need to think of them as actually following a rule in the sense that they have an explicit rule that they talk about and they think of following. You could also think of just what I'm calling the rule could just be something that we, interpreting what the group is saying, project onto the group, if that makes sense. Yeah. So where do you come down on this question exactly? I mean, do you think that that's sort of an acceptable answer? Uh, or do you think maybe that's just a temporary solution as we sort of as we work towards coming up with a more economical way of describing what unifies all these different cases of beliefs of individuals aggregating into the beliefs of a group? So I think that's more or less an acceptable answer in general, that we may need different aggregation rules in different contexts. That doesn't mean that there is not much more work that we need to do on this topic, because I think what we need to clarify is what various aggregation rules are good for. Because I do not believe that the fact that in context we will be able to choose a rule means that in, in a given context anything goes. What I believe is that in each particular application we will want to use a rule that's good for that application. So there is work that needs to be done, I think, in understanding what are the virtues of the various different rules. So when is it that a certain rule, for example, tracks the truth of a certain proposition in the most efficient way or when a rule has the most kind of fairness properties. So there is work that we need to do in understanding what the various rules are good for. And once you have that work already laid out, you can say something more precise about what you're going to do in particular context when you're choosing a rule, I think. Fabrizio Cariani, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, guys. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.